Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Shirley Kaneda is an artist living and working in New York City. Shirley was born to Korean-born parents in Tokyo and moved to New York City to attend Parsons where she received her BFA in 1976. Shirley has had over 25 solo shows at venues such as Jack Shaneman, Feigen Contemporary, Gallery Schuster, Mark Moore, Denise Gallery, Gallery Richard, and more. She's been in group exhibitions too numerous to mention in venues such as White Columns, the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Chelsea Art Museum, Acme, Rana Hoffman, and many, many more. Her paintings have been covered in Art in America, The New Yorker, Art on Paper, The New York Times, Time Out, Art News, amongst many others. On top of her long legacy of making and showing her art, Shirley is also a highly regarded art professor who has taught at Claremont, Parsons, and most recently at Pratt, where she taught from 2003 until just this year when she retired. She's also published interviews in Bomb Magazine with artists Fiona Ray, Fabian Marcaccio, Jonathan Lasker, and others. I stopped by Shirley's amazing Soho Loft studio, and we spoke about her days growing up in Tokyo, moving to the United States, being in Soho in the early unpolished days, music choices in the studio, playing guitar, and much more. Here's our conversation. business I think maybe even harder in some ways it's just so fast paced you never I think like uh, in museums I always feel like it's a slower more more Mm. digestible version of the pace of the Mm. art world you know because Mm -hmm. you have to plan things ahead and then the gallery world is like a kind of like month to month thing Yeah. yeah And then fashion just seems like God, they're, they're you're in the future. Years ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You're in the future, and you're yeah. constantly changing things. Exactly. Yeah, and then so you're you're preparing for that future stuff, and at the same time, you're constantly like tweaking and adjusting what's right. going on now, in relation to that. So mm-hmm. it's just an endless it's crazy cycle. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. I love fashion actually. Yeah, it's really interesting from the I, outside. I think if I hadn't become a visual artist. I probably would have gone into fashion because that when I was very very little. Are we taping this? Already? Yeah, sure. We'll, we are. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> oh. no official start to this. Um, uh, yeah, when I was in elementary school, we had to do this uh, report, you know, on on a subject that we really liked, and yeah. I chose fashion design. Oh, really? And I did this huge booklet on Balenciaga of all people. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and. Um, you know, my teacher loved it. I got an A for it and everything. And uh, and I grew up always loving fashion design. And yeah. I even thought about becoming a fashion designer. But um, I think being a painter was, you know, something that um, compelled me more. I was going to say, I thought for a second you were going to say, seemed more of a career path. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're pretty much the same, right? Yeah. Fashion designer, painter, they're both hard to... I think this might sound um, kind of biased towards fashion, but somehow I felt that it wasn't it wasn't as um, that there was something too frivolous about it, yeah. you know, and so um, it just wasn't intellectually stimulating for me. Right. 
Um, it was just surface. Yeah. Even though I love fashion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway. So wait, this was when was that project? You were in? Oh, I was in fourth grade or fifth grade oh, wow. or something like that. But when I first um, decided to go to art school mm-hmm. in high school, um, after you know finishing high school, I thought, okay, I don't really want to go to a regular four-year college. I'd rather go to an art school. But even at that time, I wasn't really sure which area I wanted to go into. Yeah. Um, and you know. Being brought up in Japan, it, we didn't really have a lot of um, uh, access to um, fine arts, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you had certainly lots of access to um, traditional art, uh, lots of craft, and illustration was a big thing. So oh, I yeah. thought I wanted to become an illustrator mm-hmm. because I like to draw, obviously. Right. Um, so that's. Oh, what I came here to study yeah. originally. And then the first year at Parsons, I decided, no, I really want to be a painter. <laughs> I started, you know, I, I, we had to take art history classes, obviously. My teacher was um, Martika Sawin, mm-hmm. who's this, you know, really uh, legendary art historian. And she would send us to MoMA all the time or to galleries to see shows. And I decided, this is what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I switched schools actually for a while, and then but then I ended up going back to um, Parsons and sort of majoring in illustration and painting. Right. So when you were growing up, you went to grade school and high school in Japan. Yeah. And then you came over mm-hmm. for art school. Mm-hmm. And how were your parents on that decision? Were they excited by that, or was it? How did they feel? <laughs> yeah, I thought they would be dead set against it, but surprisingly. They were like, okay, fine. Yeah. You know, sure. Were they but creative? No. My mother was very um, interested in, in art. Yeah. But uh, my father was, you know, not interested in at all. Um, but the reason why they didn't object was because I was a girl. Yeah. If my brother said he wanted to go to art school, they no would way. Have ve- vehemently <laughs> objected. <laughs> right. But Isn't it? It's, it's funny because the you know, I don't know, the stereotype or traditional thought of, like, the men have, you know, earned the money, you know, that's sort of antiquated notion of the household and the roles of, you know, the man, the husband and the wife, I guess, uh, in a sense, creates more leniency towards the idea of women doing things that are creative. Yeah. I think even today, in art schools, you know, girls outnumber boys uh, uh, far more. Um... It's also economic, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's uh, you know, like you said, boys have to earn a living. And so I think uh, most parents would, you know, sort of discourage boys to become artists. So, I mean, what kind of a life are you going to have as an artist? Right. You know? <laughs> You're never going to be able to support uh, a family. Yeah. Um, it's like giving up before you even start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So traditionally, I think that most artists came from fairly well-off backgrounds, yeah. male artists. When you look down you know, throughout history, mm-hmm. um, even from Manet, there's that wonderful book, um, which I can't remember the name of the book, but it's, it's about um, the history of Salon de Refusé mm-hmm. and, and uh, 
and, and mainly the circle around Mane, but all of them ha- came from very wealthy families. Yeah. That, you know, they were able to, to, to not make a living, not have to make a living uh, doing something else. And, it's a very and, bourgeoisie, yeah, you know, exactly. effort. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and that tradition basically um, continued up to, continues up to this up to today. I yeah. Think. I mean, if you live in New York and you're an artist, yeah. you might have to have a trust fund exactly. these days. <laughs> <laughs> or you're going to get weeded out. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it does help, obviously, yeah. uh, to... So they supported you. And were you, you were doing creative things when you were growing up. Outside of just school stuff, were you always making things or interested in where did, and did you grow up in Tokyo? Yeah, I grew up in Tokyo. In the city proper? Like yes, in Shibuya. Whoa. <laughs> really? Yes. My whole entire You know, <laughs> when we were talking before and you said I think I'm a city person, that might I, Absolutely. That might have wired you yes, in a exactly. certain way. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I was um, born in Shibuya and and my parents continued to live there until they died. Wow. My mother, um, my father, you know, passed away um, sort of suddenly, but my mother was in a nursing home after she became um, um, ill. Um, but they, they lived in Shibuya for, I don't know, you know, 60 years or something. I don't even think of Shibuya as somewhere where people live. Um, is it residential? There are parts of it that are very residential. Yeah. And um, our original house was um, in, in, this, in this area called Shoto-cho, which is, um, do you know the Tokyo department store? Yeah. The main one? Right. Not the one by the station? No, no, I know. One? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, when they built that, yeah. they had to um, essentially raise a whole bunch of uh, residential areas right. in order to build that huge uh, department store. So that's where my parents' original house was, oh. back there. Wow. But it's only like 10 minutes away from the station. Yeah. And then they moved to a, a, another area, mm-hmm. um, also in Shibuya, but also very residential. Yeah. And they lived there until, until they died. <laughs> Yeah. So the schools you went to were close? No, the, the school that I went to, um, there are several international schools mm-hmm. in Tokyo. And um, first I went to Sacred Heart, which is a Catholic school. Right. And my parents were not religious whatsoever. And um, I was sent to this religious school and I had no idea what I was doing there. Why did you go to a Catholic school? Uh, because it was, you know, it was um, one of the best, I guess, um, international schools. Okay. And um, so, you know, my parents thought that I should go there. And you went to international school because of your background or because they wanted you to? Because of my background. My right. father is, um, was a um, Korean diplomat yeah. at the time. Right. Um, so even though I was born in Japan, they weren't um, really thinking of immigrating there. Yeah. You know, he was there as a, he was posted at the at the embassy right. in Japan in Tokyo. So, um, but my parents were. Um, this gets to be kind of complicated, but you know they they lived under the Japanese occupation in Korea, mm-hmm. and my father was. Um, they they both had a Japanese education. 
Yeah. Um, my father went to a Japanese university, and and um, they were fluent in Japanese. They were very um, bicultural mm-hmm. in that sense. And then, um, and he studied political science, and he got this job in in the ministry, you know, mm-hmm. of in Korea. And then he was posted in Japan because he had gone to school there and so on. And uh, so then I was born there. Yeah. Um, and my younger brother as well. And so I don't think that they were actually thinking of of living in in Japan forever, mm-hmm. um, which is why they sent us to an English speaking school so right. that you know we would be able to adapt anywhere. Yeah. Uh, if he was posted somewhere else, which he was actually um, posted to San Francisco okay. for a, a year. Um. So that's why I went to you know to an international school, but which first, is. It's nice. You learned English. That's yes. <laughs> so you, you so you spoke Japanese. You took English right. and learned it there. Did you also speak Korean? No, we had Korean um, private lessons in the beginning, but I forgot. Didn't I take. Forgot. No, didn't take. <laughs> <laughs> You're living in Japan, you know, and uh, yeah, nobody's speaking Korean except for, except for my parents. Right. They were speaking Korean to each other, but actually they would speak Japanese most of the time yeah. to each other. That's interesting. So. International school? Did you like it? Aside from the well, the not not not, not the Catholicism. Heart. Yeah, I hated Sacred Heart. That was was awful. it as strict as Catholic schools here? Yes, yes. Well, schools and in Japan are pretty strict, anyways, right? Or at least the run. Least, it's a well, tight the Japanese ship. schools are very strict. Yeah. Um, they used to be anyway, but the Catholic school was yes, run by Australian and British nuns. Whoa! And um, they were really, they were something. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so, anyway, I, I, I so did not like it that my parents took me out when I was in third grade. Oh, really? Or fourth grade, and um, they sent me to another international school. Mm-hmm. Less Catholic? Oh, yeah, totally um, <laughs> secular. Yeah. Um, so... And were you taking, like, art classes? Is that, you know, were you yeah, doing that in school? Yeah, yeah. Um, but not, I mean, we all had to take it because it was part of the curriculum. But um, I don't know if I, I don't know exactly when I decided that I wanted to become an artist. Um, but I think I was always artistic, you right. know, in that sense. I played the guitar and, you know, I always liked <laughs> visual things and music and, mm-hmm. and so on. So, um you kind of knew that's where your life was going in yeah, some capacity. Yeah, but I think a lot of it had to do with not conforming yeah. also, you know, to, to the standard. Um, Which is very un-Japanese. Yes, to the status quo. <laughs> right. And um, I, I, above all, I wanted to, I wanted freedom. Mm-hmm. Which is still something that I want, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. In the work, um, mm-hmm. in my life, uh, yeah. So, do you think that going to the international school sort of, you know, propelled you to go to school in the states for art? I not mean, was necessarily it, was it for art per se, but I, I, because we went to this international school, it was understood that we would come here for higher education. Yeah. Um, Use that English, right? Yeah. In Japan, I think there was only one or two uh, universities 
or colleges that you know taught in English, mm -hmm. and they weren't worth going to at yeah. that time. Anyway. Right, right. Um, so yeah, it was just you know, it felt right. Part of the um, um, part of the arc, uh, and my parents, my you know, my parents grew up thinking America was like the land of, <laughs> you know, opportunity, opportunity yeah. and it was the best country in the world. Everything American was considered to be, you know, terrific. And um, so they encouraged us to come here. Yeah. Um, and um, it's funny because they, they always told me that they wanted to eventually immigrate here. Mm -hmm. But they never did. They never made it. Yeah, they never made it. I even, I even became an American citizen so that I could get uh, green cards for them. Yeah. And they, and I did. And they they had a green card for years and years. And they would come and visit us. You know, mm -hmm. visit my brothers and I. Um, oh, and you had to give up your citizenship yes, to I Japan. Yes, even though you know in Japan you don't have to actually give it up. Right. You, you they won't of, know. Yeah, they don't know. Yeah. Um, They're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> you have to sort of formally, right. you know, do go through the process of giving it up. But, yeah. So I didn't give it up for a long time, and but I, I recently did. Oh, uh, you did? Yeah, several years ago, I finally did give up. You I fessed sort of up. Regret it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I sort of do, especially since going through customs. <laughs> well, it's it's all the things that are going on. Oh yeah. You know, in in uh, in this country as well as you know in the world and. Not that I want to go back to Japan to live, but I think it's sort of nice to have that option. Right. You know? Yeah. I would love to have another citizenship <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Does your wife still have a Japanese citizenship? Yeah, she didn't become a U.S. citizen. She didn't? No. She won't. She's not giving it up. Uh-huh. And, you know, my son has, what, 18, 18 years to decide? Yes, that's right. But they don't really make you choose. No, they don't. Like, yeah. They don't check. Yeah. Again, I'm sure they're not listening. <laughs> no. There are a lot of people, yeah. actually. Oh, yeah, a lot yeah. of Japanese who, you know, At who, um, in fact, one time I think I went, after I got my American passport for the first time, mm -hmm. I went to the Japanese embassy here, consul, consulate. To, to get a Japanese visa because at that time you had it wasn't you know you couldn't just go back and forth right. freely, and she looked at my passport and she said, "You're you were previously a Japanese citizen, aren't you? You still have your Japanese citizenship. Please go back to Japan and and, oh, and, yeah. and file you know to to um, to get rid of your citizenship." Yeah, she knew. Yeah. I mean, right away. Right, but <laughs> but just, I never did it. Right, you know? she just yeah. Told anyway. you to do it, but didn't check up exactly. on it. Exactly. Yeah. There's no way for them to check. Um, so, where were we? So, let's bring it back to, now you start art school here. Mm -hmm. How was that transition? And you, it was Parsons, right? Yeah, it was Parsons, and I came to New York in 1970. And Parsons, at that time, was it still... It was the, my first year, it was on 54th Street. Oh, wow. Okay. And then they moved to the present location, yeah. which is in, on 13th Street mm -hmm. and 5th Avenue. Where'd you live? I lived on the Upper West Side. Yeah. A um, little different than now? Yeah. The city? Very different. Yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine. Right. It was scary, mm -hmm. actually, for a very sort of... Um, you know, uh, for 
for a young girl who lived in, in a place that was the safest place in the world, yeah. you know, we, we, we used to go out at three o'clock in the morning, my, friend, my friends and I, and we never felt in the least bit scared yeah. in, in Tokyo. And then I moved here, and everything was just so scary. It's like the Wild West. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just, you yeah. know, you just felt constantly uh, this, this insecurity here because... And anxiety. Never, anxiety, right? because yeah. you just never know, you know, what was going to happen to you. And the whole atmosphere at New York at that time, too, was not exactly... Uh, bristling with, you know, wealth, unless you were on the Upper West, Upper East Side, I guess, yeah. you know, or in the center. I mean, everywhere else it was pretty um, grim. Yeah. So um, even down here. And the subway, yeah, definitely down here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember the first time I came to Soho, and in, in, uh, I think it must have been 1972. Um, was it? Pretty industrial at that point. Totally right? industrial. And one did they of our, leave, did the did the industry leave at that point yet? Not or that yet. was the eighties, right? This is the seventies. Yeah. And um, yeah, a, a, one of our professors lived on um, lived in Tribeca, mm -hmm. and so um, another student and I went to visit him. And that was uh, brave. It was. <laughs> it was uh, yeah. It was very scary. But then, uh, actually, I started living here in the sort of 1976-77. Mm -hmm. I started living in, in on Chambers Street, actually, and it was great. Yeah, it was um, uh, it was a lot of fun, actually, mm -hmm. and um, there was something very. to say this, there was something very um, exciting, actually, about living down here yeah. at the time. It was uh, like a charged energy, I can yeah. imagine. Uh, despite the fact that there was hardly anything down here, mm -hmm. um, I think there was one, a couple of bars, you know, and one grocery store, um, and at night it was completely deserted, but you just you felt that you were among people that you you shared things with yeah. people who actually lived in the lofts were mostly artists right. and so you know you you just felt this this um, um, moment in which you're living in this time and and place in a moment that's almost historic yeah you know um, it's funny you probably didn't, we didn't know that, know but that. you can subconsciously right. feel exactly. like, oh, this is where it's happening. Mm -hmm. Like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Right. Exactly. And were you, at that point, was your studio where you were living or just at school? No, I was, I had already finished school and um, I was not exactly practicing as, a, as an artist at that time. Okay. Um, I had to have. I had to get a job. Mm -hmm. um, once I finished school, my parents stopped, you know, um, supporting me. So I had to go out and get a job. So, like a lot of other artists, I ended up getting a job as a paste up some mechanical. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a first. I know. 
A, a what? A pay stop? A yes. mechanical? They used to call, you know, when you laid, laid out pages for magazines oh, and yeah, newspapers, yeah. they used to call that pay stop and mechanical. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a lot of artists did that yeah. as, a, as, a, as a way to, you know, either that or you worked as a waitress. Right. Um, so you did layout, basically. Yeah, basically it's layout. Design, and, yeah. Um, but we used to call it paste up because you literally had to paste, paste type onto, you know, onto oh, a board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a cool gig. Or no, uh, it wasn't. Well, it's, you know. The, the, totally it sounds cool in, in nomenclature. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, it's a totally boring, you know, nullifying job. Um, but anyway, it paid the bills. Yeah. And How long um, did you do that? A couple of years. And then I started to, um, I thought, well, you know, I could probably start doing illustrations for as freelance. Mm-hmm. And um, so slowly I started to do that to make uh, a living, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then I would uh, sort of try to paint on the side. Yeah. Did you get the illustration gigs just by going to Midtown and yeah, in those like days, agencies? Yes, and stuff? you just you know you slap together a portfolio. I'm an, and I'm, I'm an illustrator. Yeah. <laughs> and you just took it to the magazines. You could even get appointments with art directors in those days, or there was a drop-off day when you just dropped off your portfolio, and they mm-hmm. would look at it and they'd they'd call you if you know they had a job for you. Yeah. Um, it was amazing how easy it was in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, but since I didn't really want to become an illustrator, mm-hmm. it was really just a way for me to, you know, make a living. Um, you and Andy Warhol. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have, a, I have a romantic kind of notion of like the, you know, illustration through Warhol or like my first gig when I came down here was Windows at Macy's mm-hmm. because he did Windows. I was like, that's yeah. what I can do. Yeah. And I looked in the Village Voice and the Classifieds and saw Windows mm-hmm. at Macy's, you know, and that's mm-hmm. how I did it. But yeah, I guess back then, you didn't have the internet and stuff no. like that. So if you lived here and you went somewhere with a portfolio, you kind of stick out. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, so when did you get a studio? Like, when did you actually get set up and start making your work here? Not until 1980. My first studio was on um, Duane Street. Mm-hmm. Um, Duane and Reed? Duane and um, um, Church. Okay. And when was that? That must have been like 1983, mm-hmm. I think. When did the knitting factory open down there? Oh, that was... Was um, it much later? No, that was... It was going? It was going. Because the music scene down there was, you know, mm-hmm. there was a good, vibrant mm-hmm. 80s music scene going on in New York. Yeah, the Mud time. Club, all of that, I think, was already down there. Were you going out um, to see music? Because you said you played um, guitar. Not by so much. then, no, I think by then I had sort of, uh, you know, lapsed. <laughs> as a, as I, I think I stopped playing guitar mm-hmm. by then. It's funny because I've been thinking about picking it up again after 35 years of not playing. Why not? And, yeah, I think... I just um, saw um, B. Wirtz, yeah, um, and he told me that he picked up 
a guitar after not playing for 30 years too mm-hmm. and he played something for us actually and he said in the beginning you know his his fingers were all like calloused and yeah. everything but um he said it's really great and it's like riding a bike right i, I guess mean, you can get right back yeah, into it i guess so i mean not that i was very good at it in the first place but you know i did play somewhat so i i was thinking maybe i should pick it up again um do you have a guitar still? No, you know? no. I was just checking to uh, see what, what kind I should buy. Probably a Yamaha. Yeah, like acoustic. You yeah, would play acoustic. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, not like a Les Paul. No, no, no. <laughs> not, uh, B-Words has like a, a Martin, you know, mm-hmm. that's like really uh, first rate. But no, I, I don't need anything like that. Oh, there's a, I can give you a couple really good guitar shops that sell like nice old vintage Oh, really? Acoustics that aren't that expensive, but uh-huh. have a lot of character uh-huh. that are, that'll do the job. Mm-hmm. No, we can talk about that afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you should definitely play. Yeah. But you had kind of moved past the music stuff at that yeah. point. You were kind of focused yeah. on right. artwork. And were you going out to see a lot of shows? Or were you still... Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah definitely. And it was all down here then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or at least kicking off, right? In the definitely. 80s. Yeah. So what was your early work like? Figurative. Really? Yes. Um, Despite the fact that I... When I was in school, I was painting figuratively. But when I um, got out of school and and I first saw Barnett Newman and Clifford Still, it just completely blew me, you know blew my mind completely and um, I guess when I was in school I didn't really understand abstraction Mm -hmm. and um, and after I graduated and and I was I came into contact with it it didn't matter whether I understood it or not because it just was such a um, an experience you know that was almost physical and so, um, but I didn't really have, I guess, the, um, I, did, I didn't think that I knew enough about abstraction to be an abstract painter at that time. So I, I still continued to do, you know, figuration. And um, I remember when I first saw David Sally's work, for example, I thought, wow, you know, this is really great. Um, and it had elements of abstraction, right? In a way, you know. Right. Um, and was your work really loose, or was it no gestural? Not it was more really. tight. Um, the thing is, I think it it probably had elements of design, mm-hmm. you know, with figuration. It, it even though I really tended to like classical uh, art more, mm-hmm. uh, classical figuration more. But, um, I mean, what can you do with, you know, classical figuration? And, and not to mention the, the time and energy that, you know, you have to spend on, right. <laughs> on um, making, you know, classical paintings. I, I, uh, I, I admire somebody like Lisa Yuskevich, for example, to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, paint in that, almost classical style. Julia Heffernan. Yeah. Julia yeah. was my teacher and 
Oh, really? I can't imagine mm-hmm. doing those paintings. Right. That's a that's a commitment. Yeah. And um, and anyway, I I actually didn't think that it was valid, you know, to paint in that way at mm-hmm. at least at that time. Yeah. Today it's a different story, but I think at that time, you know, you, you there were still a lot of rules and and regulations and yeah. you know and um, this is what, what accepted yeah right, and what yeah. what is uh, advanced art right so so anyway um, but gradually is I started to uh, change you know into abstraction um, and I started out making very simple sort of uh, grid like paintings mm-hmm. um, so the grid has always sort of been an, a kind of armature for me, right? Geometry and, and and the grid to break away from too, right? Yeah, to like move against, mm-hmm. which is kind of like your youth in a way. You had the grid of, you know, the kind of more rigid, formulaic way that you're supposed to be, and mm-hmm. then it seemed like you wanted to sort of break that up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I I think. It's interesting that you you bring that up because my background, I think, was extremely um, strict. Mm -hmm. My parents were very strict. The culture I lived in was, you know, very formal and ordered, and you had to observe all these rules all the time. And um, my parents, in some ways, were probably not as strict as as you know as as um, other parents in their generation, but strict enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's all relative yeah, to your experience. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, it, in some ways, I I think I have that foundation, and so I I I've never been interested in like pure gesture, for example, mm-hmm. because. I don't know. You know, I need something. I need a, a basis, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, something to to work from and against. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever seen the animation, the Chuck Jones? You know, the guy who did Warner Brothers cartoons. The animation called the Dot and the Line. Mm-mm. It's about a line that falls in love with a dot. A dot. <laughs> And, oh, maybe I have. And he's too stiff for her, but he learns how to sort of make himself into mm-hmm. these arabesque shapes and. And it, but it's still the underlying grid mm-hmm. of him, mm-hmm. like the foundation. Right, Whereas right. the squiggle who initially <laughs> interested her uh, was like too wild and yeah. had no sort of foundation, you know? So it's kind of like the mix of both, both of those things. Right, right. Sometimes you need the order to break into chaos because yes. if it's all chaos, it's just random. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Um, not to mention that I think I've always been, you know, Enamored with um, um, geometric painting, you know, or concrete art. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, you, Barnett Newman. Yeah. Did you like Agnes Martin and yeah, yeah. Mondrian yeah. and um, um, Malevich, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that uh, it, for me, in a way, I guess abstraction is rooted. In, in that. Yeah. Um, and what about color for you? Like, where does that sensibility come from? Uh, I know it's hard to 
It's a difficult one to put into words. Well, I think it does definitely come from my experience um, living in in Japan, and um, you don't necessarily think of Japan as being colorful per se, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a part of Japanese culture that's very austere. Right. Um, but in actuality, you know, when you grow up seeing women wearing these really bright kimonos and and they and the Japanese have this incredible sort of um, sensibility, you yeah. know, in terms of color and design and so on. Um, and then and and Korea also has a similar, different mm -hmm. but similar sort of sensibility to you know colors and and I think a lot of my colors come from that background yeah you know and an experience of seeing all of that while i was growing up so i i tend to gravitate towards certain colors mm -hmm. but i always i'm i'm always thinking of how to use it but use it in a way that might look different or fresher right you know um it's like you're almost given an unconscious palette yeah. through what you've seen that you gravitate towards right. but then it's you're making these conscious decisions on top of that to tweak it or to yeah. to add meaning mm -hmm. almost like put your hand on that experience in a way I would imagine that most people have you know um, preferences in terms of the colors that yeah. they like or, or dislike and and then you know of course we all hear from dealers that you know Collectors don't like green painting. <laughs> you know? Right. I love green. I happen to love green. Yeah. I've made a lot of green paintings, mm -hmm. and no wonder they didn't sell. But <laughs> um, that's because there is a kind of collective perception about you know what what colors um, make you know how they make you feel. Right. And so. Um, Blue, I guess, is supposed to be one of the most neutral and appealing colors, mm -hmm. you know, to the general public. Right. Um, and uh, I like blue, too, definitely. Um, but color is, I think, also something that is that needs experimentation. Yeah. You, know, you need to constantly sort of experiment and work through it, work through it and yeah. and different color combinations produce different um, experiences. Yeah. I love, that's one thing that's, I feel like if you think of making art as a collection of variables and color as one of those variables is the one that feels like the most indefinable and the most direct in a way. Yeah. It's like experiential, mm -hmm. you know, like music. I'm always saying that music is is a great art form because it's it's less encumbered by you know the mm -hmm. history and all it's more about you go listen to it it makes you feel a certain mm -hmm. way and i think color has that sensibility mm -hmm. whereas you know the conceptual side of the work or the physical way it's made that can be more analyzed but color kind of has this nice intuitive you know kind of natural way of communicating to people and Definitely. it's really hard to put your finger on it but the balance of how you're using it with the conceptual side of your work is such a huge part of it too mm -hmm. that you know it, it makes it difficult to pin down but fun to to sort of play with i would say that color is one of my subjects yeah. in the work you know a lot of artists think of it as something that's secondary mm -hmm. you know it's there but 
it's not really the subject of the work. Right. Whereas for me, it, it is the subject. It's, it, it's not the only subject, but it's certainly one of the main subjects. Yeah. You can choose how close you want to zoom into it right. conceptually in your work. I mean, obviously, like with minimal, there's a lot of minimal work. It's purely about color. Mm-hmm. Like Peter Haley looking at someone like that, where it's, it's very conceptual, very aggressive, and, and you can tell that that color is a sort of lead role in like the mm-hmm. conceptual side of that work. But yeah, it can sort of almost fall to default in the same way that you know representation falls to default in abstract work right. in a certain aspect of it. You know, so it's it's kind of a interesting equation. But when you were working and you started working more abstract, you just felt that felt like a natural way of working or you responded to that way of working yeah definitely did it feel liberating moving out of figuration into that um yes yes but um i think it was all about challenging oneself too and figuration just did not present a challenge to me or enough of a challenge or i didn't find a way to you know, have it challenge mm-hmm. me. Whereas abstraction was very challenging to me. Um, and I'm not so interested in, in narrative anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in how we make sense of something, you know, without the um, narrative structure. Mm-hmm. So abstraction, you know, kind of does that for you, right? Yeah, represents um, thinking about the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's funny because what initially probably made you shy away from diving into it at first is really what was the lure of it. You know, is this kind of, you know like how do I go like I don't know if I'm ready to just not talk about narrative but then that's where you found the narrative within working through abstraction you know what I mean yeah that's that's kind of like Mm -hmm. the process of it when you I imagine you were you were saying you played guitar when you were younger you were probably a fan of music yeah do you like music that's more narrative do you go towards more instrumentals yeah yeah makes sense actually um I'm I'm totally into Miles Davis Mm -hmm. and um I like it because there's, you know, no lyrics yeah. to it. And especially when I'm working, um, if I want words, I'll listen to um, books on tape. Right. You know, when, I, when I'm doing something that's more like busy work, then I can, I can listen to some, a story. Mm-hmm. But when I'm actually working, uh, thinking through things, I don't want to be listening to, you know, yeah. a narrative. It's distracting. <laughs> yeah, it's very distracting. But it's funny because Miles, is, his playing is very lyrical. It is, but... It's just unencumbered by narrative yeah, of exactly. what it's those lyrics mean. sounds that are put together. It's very, for me, they're very much like abstraction. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I can, I'm, I'm totally into him right now. <laughs> That's great. And the beauty of being into Miles is that you get the whole spectrum... From the early exactly. bebop to, you know, out exactly. on yeah. the corner and stuff like that, right. where it gets more funky. Right. You can put yourself in a lot of different moods through yep. that archive. Yep. Absolutely. Do you listen to, do you use like Spotify or do you actually use records or how do you listen? No, to I, I'm, I've been listening on my um, iPhone, yeah. actually. 
Uh, I have this, you know, the Apple thing where where you can just uh, subscribe. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, monthly, and yeah. you can listen to whatever you want. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Um, that's that seems to be the the easy. I, I'm not. I don't have to have like a huge stereo system, mm -hmm. you know, um, hooked up for me to work. Some people really want all of that. Right. But for me, it's it's. The iPhone is just enough playing for it me. off the yeah, phone. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to be, I get into the audiophile sort of, you know, yeah. needing the right speakers and mm -hmm. or headphones. But I mean, sometimes I would, I'll, you know, listen it. Yeah, you have a pretty big to. Bose yes, speaker. Yes, the Bose is pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, I use those noise canceling headphones, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Really. You can shut out the world in those things. I have to get one of those. Yeah. They're really nice. Yeah, especially when you travel. I bet it's great. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah. But even in your studio, if you don't want to be interrupted, you turn those things on and you get lost in that world. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Isn't there a bow store like 10 Around feet? Around the corner here. <laughs> <laughs> this is not, this podcast is not funded by Bose. <laughs> those are free ads. But yeah, they're really good. Yeah. Yeah. And the noise cancellation is so, as you were saying before, sometimes it gets noisy and, yeah. you know, you can get distracted and bumped out of your element. Yeah. And when you're working, I imagine you're not, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you're not sort of scrolling your Instagram feed and tweeting while you're working. You kind of separate that stuff. Um, or does the phone get, get in there? I think um, I try not to look at my email too often, you know, but, mm -hmm. but it happens. I don't know, you know, after, after like working two hours or three hours, you need a break. Yeah. So that's when I, you know, will go check my right. uh, email and then I might end up reading the news or, you know. Why would you like do that. something depressing <laughs> like <I> that? <laughs> it, well... In terms of what's going on today, it's just you know almost compulsory right. that you you stuff is coming at you all the time. Yeah, I have you to. You can't help it. I have to forcefully shut off. Yeah. that stuff. I learned that you know after nine eleven when that happened, and I went on like a what was probably like an eight month bender of just nothing but twenty four hour news cycle, mm -hmm. and then I hit a point I didn't even realize the anxiety and the tension. I hit a certain point where I was like I have to just stop watching the news, mm -hmm. you know, and then I stopped and got into a music phase and it felt really good mm -hmm. to purge that. I mean, you have to pay attention to that stuff, but I think it can just hit a fever pitch where you can't even concentrate on anything. Oh, I know. You just get consumed by it and, and yeah. life now is like a series of algorithms that will just keep you in whatever cycle that you're thinking about, so... It's funny, I mean, I lived through 9-11 here yeah. and... Um, I remember, you know, that morning quite clearly and, and the aftermath of it. But um, I almost feel like what's going on today is worse in some ways um, because I don't think, even at that time, I did feel this sense of anxiety and instability and, you know, insecurity and so on. Today I feel it even more. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's my age or, you know... Um, it just feels like we are really living in, in a world that is extremely tenuous. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, not to mention. Right. <laughs> um, but I wonder the that. The occupant in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if it, 
if it because I deep down I feel like things are generally getting better it's just we're so saturated with the negative news that it seems like there's more happening do you know what I mean like I'm sure 50 years ago yes a lot of these issues that are surrounding us now it's almost like they're just getting really exposed by the light right now and that's how you have to really get rid of it well, is to to I, shine the light on it I think in in when you look at the totality of things you know the world life has certainly gotten a lot better for a lot of people mm-hmm. we don't have as much poverty I suppose um, in, in you know when we look at the whole world right so um, but the reality is is there is a huge divide between um, the wealthy and the poor oh, yeah. and um, and I think that particularly in in America you know being not a being a naturalized citizen mm-hmm. um, I guess I, I tend to be more critical of of the the services you know that we that I think we should be uh, that should be the norm actually that we should be getting or expecting right. but it doesn't seem to happen here because because of all the um, um, political you know red uh, tape or just the just bureaucracy bureaucracy as well as a, a kind of um, more than in any other country it seems that you know the federal government has is 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 the target of of all these complaints and so you know we've had deregulations since I don't know you know since the Carter days actually yeah. he, he was the one who deregulated I think the airline industry Right, but from then from then on, it's just been you know, everything's been deregulated. So everything's been privatized, mm-hmm. and and it's turning out that you know it's things are falling apart because it's because the private section is not doing its job. Right, and and I think the federal government should actually step in to a certain degree to regulate you know something some things so that the common people. Can actually have access to things that are are um, are the norm in other cultures, like universal health care. You know, yeah. that's that's really like no other industrialized nation um, is in this situation where you, you know you 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 uh, you don't have it. It's just unthinkable in other countries. I know. Um, anyway, especially coming if if people aren't aware of like. What it's like in Japan, where yeah. everything is taken care of so well. Exactly. I mean, generalizing, but it's just like if there's a pothole on the road, it doesn't take two weeks to fix exactly. it. Exactly. They do it in like two seconds, yep. and they're gone. Yeah. Like everything, like the infrastructure, everything's taken care of so smoothly, and like, and there's a general concern for the public and the yep. awareness of people and a collectivism that, you know, when you every time I come back from over there and come over here, I'm just like, oh my god, what do. <laughs> Or just taking a train for crying oh, out loud. The difference yes. is there. Yes. So yeah, that's it's, a- it's expensive, definitely, and um, but I think the, the the people don't. I mean, they might complain about it, but you know, you you pay for what you get, yeah. essentially. And in in this country, people don't want to spend. You know, they don't want to pay taxes. They don't want. You know, they they want to spend as minimal as possible. Uh, on on these kinds of services, well, no wonder things are going to fall apart because yeah. you know you 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 can't 
who's going to pay for it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But if you see like someone like the MTA and how much profit they have, yeah, and then you ride the train, you're exactly. like, where are they putting that money? That's why you don't want to pay anything because right. it's not going to the right. It's exactly. not being directed in the yes. right way, I think. So in there's New a York. there's a hesitancy for people to want to support something that they feel like they're not getting what they're supporting, right. you know, the worth out of it. On this block, for example, you know, I don't know, they seem to um, to uh, do construction on this in the same part of the street all the time. It lasts forever. Right? Forever. Houston Street has been under construction <laughs> yeah. since the dawn of exactly. civilization. And you wonder, what? There must be some sort of, you know, uh, um, corruption here, you know, because it's just not possible for them to be working on the same damn place every, every couple it, of months. It's unions. Yes, it's exactly. Endless. Either that or there's there's some sort of amazing hidden treasure somewhere under Manhattan <laughs> and they're just digging for, for that thing exactly. forever to try to find it. And when you try to get around the city, it's like an endless like, yeah. hopscotch to get around it. And in Brooklyn, it's just real estate. It's the real estate version of like constant development. Yeah, it's the oh my god, the constant development is going on everywhere in New York. It's it's just um, that's another reason why I think of leaving because it's it's all this it's just construction everywhere. It's true. You um, need you should probably go to Shibuya. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the frying pan. You know, it's it's in interesting the how the the main section of Shibuya has mm-hmm. changed. Not that much, yeah. but you know, it's it's changed. But mm-hmm. the the residential areas have not changed yeah. at all. Um, it's funny how there's pockets like that. Like if you, when you get off at uh, Harajuku Station yeah. and you go up towards the stadium, like back mm-hmm. there, there's areas that just seem yeah. like they're untouched. Exactly. But then you know, the buildings, like the giant buildings that are constantly right. changing and shifting. Right. But I think it's, yeah, they have a respect for certain mm-hmm. areas and places that yeah. they maintain. the. I don't think it's that easy also to, you know, just tear down something and, 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 and reconstruct, even yeah. though they're, they're doing enough of that. But um, it's, it's, I mean, you know, again, I think there are lots of regulations in place that people just can't do that. I mean, I think in America, people have this, you know, um, phobia to regulation. Right. Yeah. And um, it's sort of, um, when I also think about uh, the difference between, you know, Japanese culture and American culture, for example, um, it's not that the values are all that different, per se, but um, they don't have this uh, assumption that your individual freedom, you know, is the most important, or it trumps everything else. Right. They're much more interested in the collective, even if they don't totally agree with it. Mm-hmm. They are forced to conform and and be part of this larger pl- community or society. Yeah. And so the the this right of indiv- the, of the individual is is just. You know, like it's not a it's not a very strong value there, right? But it's an island nation of people who've been there forever, so the collectivism works. Whereas yes. the United States is built on people different, from all over the exactly. world, and the idea here is you step on the other person to get, 
you know, mm-hmm. like to get ahead, mm-hmm. or you know, it's it's you against the world, right. kind of, and you can make it right. if you try really hard. Right, and I think that worked for a while. You know, I mean, it's I think the, that it, it's it's a quick burn. Yeah, it's not the long. It's not exactly. you know, it's like sprinting right. for a marathon. And now, now I think we? we're beginning to see you know the the detriment of that to a certain degree. And I think an exact mirror of that is our environment yeah. because we've you know, industrialized and we've created a lot of really amazing things. That's the sprint, but the marathon is the well-being of the earth, which yes. is not to get, I'm getting way too far off. <laughs> no, but it's true. But I think yeah. that's, you know, yeah. that's happening. We're, yeah. we're sort of doing all these amazing little things and, and bad little things to our environment exactly. at the detriment of the, the greater good of the planet. So, you know, anyways, let's pull it back to your work. <laughs> We're getting way out there. Um, <laughs> we can always cut it. Later. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you started showing in the city. Yes. What year was your first show? I I I was Do a late remember? starter. Oh yeah, um, 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was 40. Uh, oh so wow! Your first show was when yes, you were 40. I was 40. Um, and so. Yeah, I was definitely a very, very slow, late starter. Yeah, these days, if you don't have a solo show by your first year of grad school, you're old news. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my telling my students, you don't have to take it so fast, you know, take your time, yeah, doesn't make yeah, any yeah. sense to them. <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, they don't want to hear that. that. No, no. There's no time for <laughs> no. that. No, it's a totally different thing circumstance for right. you know for these uh, younger artists they have um, student loans to pay and yeah. so on and they get their groceries delivered within an hour of ordering it yeah I mean they don't want to wait yeah. years and years to do that stuff yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah my first show was uh, with um, Jack Shaman mm-hmm. and um, was that space on, on Broadway he was on Broadway um, Above where Dean and DeLuca is now. Oh, right, right, right. And he um, was on the same floor as Max Protek. Mm-hmm. Didn't you show with Max Protek? Max was my first gallery, but that was when in, he, in he was in 22nd. Yeah, he was right. one of the first people to go to, to Chelsea. Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I showed with Jack. I had three shows with him. Mm-hmm. And um, I left to go, to, uh, to go show with Feigen. And Feigen was one of the early um, galleries to open in Chelsea yeah. at the time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something's there. <laughs> well, it's interesting how the trajectory you mm-hmm. know, of, of one's career and also the trajectory of Certain galleries, um, right. you know, longevity. Like yeah. Jack is doing very well. He's he's still around, and he's, although you know, I'm not surprised because he's he's um, Jack is a very decent person who yeah. who's who's um, um, very steady mm-hmm. kind of person. Yeah, you can tell. There's some people who are kind of in it for the quick. Yeah, you know, not looking long term. Right. And obviously, he's got a good eye, and he's yeah. showing yeah. good people. So. Right. Um, yeah, he's a survivor. Yeah, you know, in that sense. Um, Man, to make it that long in that biz, you got to have some endurance. Exactly, exactly. Let alone 
women dealers who have dealt with all that. You know, mm-hmm. that's it can't mm-hmm. be easy. Yeah. For women dealers, I think it's uh, well. I better not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could say yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after Feigen, you you had a couple shows there. Yeah, I had uh, I don't know three shows there. I think mm-hmm. also. And um, meanwhile, I was showing in Europe also. Um, so I was showing regularly every two years, mm-hmm. you know, or sometimes every year. Um, and then um, um, Feigen was beginning to have problems. Um, so, you you know, you can sort of see that they were struggling. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, um, I left to show with um, Bernard Jacobson in London. And he insisted that I had to be represented by him, you know. Um, exclusively? Exclusively, yeah. So, so I did. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing just they don't want to share no (laughs) no Um, but actually you know he got me a lot of um, shows and of course what you know what happens in that case is that they have to go through him right so but you know a lot of galleries aren't willing to do that right Um, so one of the shows that I was supposed to have in Florida um, I think the dealer found out at the very last minute that she had to go through Bernard, mm-hmm. you know, and she was completely uh, upset about it. Yeah. And 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 I don't, I didn't like being put in this position where you know I had to like, what? Well, but you know, you you knew you came from Bernard. He was the one who introduced you to my mm-hmm. work, and you know, and so on. And um, anyway. Stuff like that, you know, yeah. Just, um, I know artists are kind of put in, in between a lot. Yeah. And, but never really educated or understanding of exactly how to deal with that kind of, right. You know, business right. Right. interactions. It's such a weird thing, and there's never contracts. There's never, it's all so loosey goosey, you know. Yeah. And exactly. from the people that I speak to outside of the art world who ask about that stuff, they're just like, what do you mean that you work with the gallery but there's no contract, or there's, you know, or mm-hmm. like you could just leave, they could just leave? It's kind mm-hmm. of a funny, funny yep. system, I guess. Yeah, it's a very, um, what's the word? Uh, amorphous, yeah. you know, situation. And uh, that's, it's unregulated, which is, why I, I think that you know there's so so much disparity between um, works that sell for millions and then yeah. you know and and uh, and works that sell for practically nothing. Right. Um, I don't know when that's ever going to change, but um, I don't know who's going to regulate it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. How can you? How can you? Um, Last night, we, I went to an opening at um, Chris Martin's opening at, mm-hmm. you know, at the new space of, of Anton, Anton Kern. Kern. Have you been there? No, I haven't yet. It's on 55th Street between 5th and Madison. Wow. That's a <laughs> and it's a whole townhouse, but pretty oh, big really? townhouse, I yeah. would say. Yeah. 
And um, wait, does he not have the other space? No, I don't think he has that space oh, anymore. I see. Um, which he obviously renovated. You mm-hmm. know, it's a very uh, nice space in, in some ways, but. It's interesting because part of the architecture was left to expose, like, you know, the 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 um, what? How do you call those? Um, like the rafters. Like the, the uh, beams. The wooden know. beams. Yeah, the wooden beams. Yeah. So it makes you, even though it's on Fifty Fifth Street, and you know, it makes you sort of think, wonder where you are. Right. You know? Is this like it's like a collage of yeah. places like styles of exactly? Yeah. There's an industrial kind of you know mm-hmm. aspect to the to the space, um, but it's make no mistake. I mean, it is definitely <laughs> you know uh, an established Polished. establishment. Yeah, you know, um, it's definitely not in Chelsea or in the Lower East Side, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but. They had um, prices on the on the um, checklist, yeah. which was really surprising. I know you're supposed to, by law, right. have that, but most galleries don't have it, right? Yeah. And it's almost kind of, you know, distasteful to to have it. Right. But maybe because it's on Fifty Fifth Street, they have to. Yeah, have yeah. It. Someone might regulate that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because remember when that first happened, where they're like, you have to put the prices, and maybe for like three months it happened. Right. And then they were like, ah, it's fine. Exactly. No one's gonna pay attention. Right. Like, who's enforcing this anyways? Yeah, it is funny. Maybe up there it's more of like, oh, look how much this costs. You yeah. Know? Or maybe there are more inspectors up there. Yeah. You know? uh, and it is, it's sort of, this gallery is in the middle of this block that, you know, has, I think it's next to one of the big hotels. I can't remember what it was. Sher- not Sherry Netherlands, but, you know, one of the big hotels. Right. And then, then it's all these businesses Mm -hmm. and um, it really does look completely out of place yeah Um, it's a weird place to have a gallery yeah it's it's um it's not the upper east side you know like uh in the 70s near the whitney where a lot of other spaces have um a a lot of other galleries have spaces up there but this is like right in the middle of i don't know midtown manhattan yeah corporate corporate business yeah, yeah yeah Well, maybe that's a new neighborhood for those who can afford brownstones to put I think so. their gallery in. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, um, yeah. So, well, getting back world. to your getting back to your work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why don't you bring us up to today? Like, what have you been working? When did you start teaching? Because that's been a big part of your. Yeah, that was a big part of my. Well, I always taught, you know, as an adjunct. Mm-hmm. Um, in different places in, in the city. My first full-time job was at Virginia Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And, VCU? Um, hmm? VCU? Yeah, VCU. And um, from there, I went to Claremont Graduate University. Mm-hmm. Well, how long did you live out in California? Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you like it? No. <laughs> No, well, I did not. Clearly, like it. not enough to keep you out there. No, it's a different thing, right? I just don't like driving oh, you know, all yeah. that all that way, and and it, well, that's it, a deal breaker. Yeah, <laughs> if you're not a driver, LA is not going to be a good place. No, and also I think going back to being a city girl, mm-hmm. you know, it, I just I like to go out and be able to walk somewhere and yeah. 
and be in proximity, you know, of of not just places but of people. Right. Out there, you know, you really are isol everybody's isolated. Everybody lives in yeah. houses and and they all go to openings because they can see other right. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, here it's a totally different situation. Yeah. And um, uh, I missed you know, I just missed the sort of interaction, human mm-hmm. interaction and, and um, just being in a in an environment that um, gave you a stimulation you yeah. know you, you just feel stimulated here um, maybe you feel anxious too but you know you, right. you feel you're always sort of there's always something going on here and um it's got its own energy yeah I feel like in la you create the energy or it's you know it's like a destination whereas here it's just you're in it right the city's doing its own thing and you just hop in had I gone there if I was when I was younger, maybe I would have taken to it, you know, a lot more. But I was already um, like in my fifties when I moved there. When so. growing up in Tokyo, Tokyo has more of a New York yeah. sister vibe than Completely. you know the LA. It took goes. me a long time to even feel at home in New York. Yeah. You know, but once I did, um, I really can't couldn't imagine living anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe <laughs> had I gone to California as a student or a young artist, um, certainly, you know, it would have been a different, different experience. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of transplants who, you know, who like living there mm-hmm. now. Um, in well, so, any case. So, so you only taught for two years? At, at, in California, yeah. And then you just moved, did you move back on a different job or did you just yes, come back? Yes, I got a job at Pratt. Okay. They offered me a, a full-time position mm-hmm. at Pratt. So um, it was a hard decision, you know, but um, I wanted to come back to New York. Were you teaching at Claremont when Roland Reese was there? No, he had just graduated, uh, retired. Okay. So I basically took over his job. Oh, I see. Do you know Roland? I well, I just know him because I had a studio visit with him when I was in undergraduate school. He came, uh-huh. and do you know there's certain people you have studio visits with early on that make a big impact, and he was one of those people. Where was, where did you go to undergrad? At Penn State. That's where. What I was teach. he doing at Penn State? <laughs> yeah, I have he was no, invited as an as a visiting artist. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh huh. Well, I, I think Roland did a lot of those things, actually. Yeah. He was a very beloved teacher. Oh, I I, had loved, I mean, I just Claremont. had him in my studio for half an hour, but I loved him. Mm-hmm. The only thing I was bummed out is I, I thought, he, he this guy must listen to jazz music because his paintings seem so jazzy. Mm-hmm. And I asked him what he listened to, and he said, NPR. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, really? And I was like, no Coltrane or Eric Dolphy? And he's like, no, I'm just NPR. <laughs> all the time? Yeah, pretty much all the time. <laughs> I did that for a while, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those paintings are loud, and yeah. they just feel yeah. like that sort of jazz energy mm-hmm. to them. But, mm-hmm. yeah, he was great in the studio. He gave me a lot of helpful pointers, and I just remember, you know, some people leave, like, especially visiting artists. Mm-hmm. Some people leave, and they just totally set your life on fire, your studio life on fire, and just burn down the building. And then some people... When they leave, you feel like, yeah, now I want to paint for like mm-hmm. the next two months straight mm-hmm. and don't even sleep, you know. And he was one of those people. He was um, instrumental, actually, in, in making Claremont a painting program, yeah. you know, mainly a painting program, which, to, to the consternation of the other 
two professors <laughs> there who weren't painters. Yeah. Um, but any anyway, um, yeah, he he was. He he actually you know he didn't he wasn't always making paintings. Um, he was making those dioramas, yep. um, and then he started making abstract paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in the nineties, I think. Yeah, I remember him giving a, an epically long uh, lecture yeah. with a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. Like he had done yeah. a lot of things. But it was really good. Yeah. So, yes, he, he, had, he had, I basically took over his job. Yeah. So you came to Pratt, and was that a good move? You felt good about, well, you were there for a good amount of time. Well, I was there for 14 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I went, I saw a lot of changes, you know, mm-hmm. go through. But um, the difference between a New York art school and Claremont, for example, or even, you know, VCU, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a university, it's, it's night and day. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know that, but I can imagine. <laughs> yes. I never went to an art school. I never taught an art school. I've only uh, been in universities, so yeah. I don't really know that side of things, but I can imagine it's yeah. night and day. As a student, actually, art schools are, you know, much more intense in terms of your art education right. as opposed to a four-year college. Yeah, because right? you're doing electives and yes. all the other stuff. Yeah. But as a teacher, it's, it's you know, obviously much more, um, it's much better teaching in a four-year college, mm-hmm. four year, in a university situ- system yeah. rather than an art school because... Normally, universities, especially state universities and so on, are, you know, under the mandate of of of, of um, state um, rules, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, so you know, there are things that are already in place. Whereas, in art schools, it's much more, sort of, you know, uh, rogue. Rogue, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, um, I mean, it's so funny because that's such a kind of like a stereotype of thinking about artists. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you think of a university with all these committees and all these different yeah. areas and all that, and it's a very sort of across structured. the board structured yeah. sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then, you know what? I have an idea. Let's create a separate school and it'll just be, in, we'll just put artists in charge mm-hmm. of it. And it's artists running it and artists <laughs> teaching it. And you would imagine it's just bedlam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like, there's no structure. You know, it's, I'm joking, exactly. but you would imagine no, no, no structure. Yeah, People are just no on joke. each other's case about, like, you know, exactly. posturing against your work versus my work, and it's just, I can't imagine if it's actually like that, what that must be like. Yeah, so it was a little bit of a shock yeah. for me, actually. Um, well, uh, you weathered the storm. Yeah, well, you know, the the fact that I could live in New York and, and, and have a full-time job was, uh, um, you know, uh, extremely um, fortunate situation. It's like finding a diamond. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, the, the jobs in New York are so few and far between, so, yeah. but, um, yeah, I felt very uh, fortunate, you know, even though it was hard work, I have to say. Um, but know. did you get energy from the student like you... You enjoyed the process? Up to a certain point. Yeah. yeah. And then you're like, screw it, I can't take these kids anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> no, I miss the students, actually. 
um, yeah, um, most of them. If you could only, if you could do it, you know, only when you wanted to do it, then it's fine. But right, uh, when you have when you are committed to having to do this, you know, on a regular basis, it's um, it's very very draining. That could be said about any job, probably. Yeah, right? yeah, right. Well, except for that's the funny part. As an artist, your work, like what you're doing in the studio. You could do that every yeah. damn day if you yeah. if you could just do it and do it and even on the down days you're like you know what this is a gift you know but any other job job or whatever you know it's even if it's related like well it has its perks but I'd rather be in the studio definitely well you know artists I think by nature are selfish of course and so yeah. you know and you you need as as much. Um, Whatever you you uh, uh, can get in terms of time, yeah. energy, focus, you know, you you want that as much as possible. Inspiration. Yeah, that takes time. Exactly, yeah. and so you have to consciously, I think, weed things out all the time. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're you're just all over the place. Yeah. And um, at at some point, you just don't want to have to give yourself <laughs> you know to right. another person mm-hmm. your student who you know who's needing your input mm-hmm. you want that input to go into yourself right yeah it's like having kids yeah i i don't have kids <laughs> yeah, but, but i, I can mean, imagine you know right it's like uh, towards the end of the day mm-hmm. i get that like a micro feeling of what you're talking about mm-hmm. roughly at about 10 o'clock every <laughs> single night when i'm like listen guy I've given you a lot today. <laughs> Can you just give me an hour on the couch? Right. Like because I know if this goes any longer, I'm gonna pass out before you do, and then I get no me time. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah. 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 But it's rewarding. But it is exhausting. Yeah. You know, it's it's the, it's rewarding, but you know, it has its um, limits, and you know, it has its sort of uh, shelf life and. I don't know. I mean, some people can do it for a long time, but for me, I just knew yeah. you know, that that time was up. Right. And it was now or never, you know. Um, so we're in the now. You're here. You have this amazing studio, and you're making work. Yeah. You're making work every day pretty much now? And yeah, pretty much. But it's funny because... Um, when you are actually working in another job and you have other responsibilities and so on, you know, you, you do have to structure your life. Yeah. And so, you know, you say, okay, I, I'm going to work on such and such a day and such and such time. <laughs> when, once all of that is removed, mm-hmm. you, you can, you know, sort of go in there anytime you want. Yeah. Um, must when, be kind of a shock to the system in a way because I, it's like, I think wait, I'm, yeah. where's the grid? I'm really sort of orienting myself in terms of how to structure uh, how to work, yeah. you know. Um, also, as you get older, and it's not just about age, but I think it's also about our lives, and despite the fact that I don't teach, there's all these other distractions, you know. Yeah. I mean, we have technology and social media and so on that you know constantly interrupts you all the time Mm -hmm. and i think we're almost wired at this time at this point to expect multitasking all the time so you know 
I think if I'm in my studio and I can concentrate for three hours without any break, that's pretty good in a way. And it feels weird, right? Where you're it, like, it wait. It feels like... Am I sleeping on something else? <laughs> yeah. Whereas when I was um, in my 40s, for example, mm -hmm. I could be in the studio for eight hours easily. Yeah. You know? Um, I don't have that kind of concentration. Right. Um, and I have a feeling it has to do with how our lives have changed, you know, over the decades. And uh, maybe if I'm not living in New York and I'm living out in the country, that might be possible, you know, yeah. to be in the studio for that long. Um, but I'm also not in any hurry. Right. Um, I don't have a show planned. As a matter of fact, I don't have a gallery right now. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't... Uh, but this is by design, by choice. Um, yeah. So um, I wanted to have this time where I wasn't working under any kind of pressure, um, such as a show um, or an art fair or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I really... For a while, I think for the last, I would say, um, 15 years or so, um, I was showing regularly, almost once a year, you mm -hmm. know, and I didn't enjoy the process, actually, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, like working on that. It was working. It was like working, yeah. <laughs> working, yeah. working on top of, you know, everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it, it really took the joy out of it. Um, not that I didn't enjoy working, but um, I don't think, actually, I don't think painting is really that joy, joyful anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know? It I mean, it's work. hard work, right. actually. Yeah. Um, but... I wanted to be more uh, in control of, you know, what I'm producing rather than, oh, God, okay, I have to finish this. I'm doing a show, and so I have to finish this, right. this, this body of work. You know, what am I going to do for this next show? Oh, I have to come up with ten paintings, you know. So you sort of run through all these different studies, and you think, okay, I'll make this painting and that painting, and, you know, you picture this whole show in your head, and then you, you go and do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? And, and um, I really wanted to sort of halt that process for a while. To make some work not under duress. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm sure it's going to be manifest itself in the studio. Yeah, I want some. I want to see something else, you know, yeah. rather than constantly sort of referring back to what I know already or yeah. relying on something that you know is like, okay, I know this painting's gonna sell or something like yeah. that, you know. Um, not that. I mean, I don't. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, making paintings. Um, paintings are for consumption. <laughs> right. So They're for so people certain, to enjoy. Yes, exactly. On the other hand, it's a balance of, of that and, and, and how you can continue to make it interesting for yourself. And so that 
you know, it's it's not all about satisfying a certain uh, commitment that yeah. you have, and um, I'm the kind of painter I think that I get easily probably bored and distracted, mm-hmm. and so if I make something, I'm not interested in making that again, and so I I'm constantly looking for ways to change and expand right because part of I think being an artist is about about that yeah um, that I think is probably not a very um, uh, it's not good for you know business in the sense right. that you know people want consistency and a, right. and a kind of signature style, Your look, yeah, yeah. you know, and so on. And I, I'm not sure, if, I don't think I have a signature style. You know, I think that I have a certain way of working that's definitely my way of working, mm-hmm. but it's not like easily identifiable, right. you know. Like, oh, that's your yeah. work, that's your work. Right, and I think I've consciously always rejected that mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm, I, I, I couldn't make the same painting over and over again. Right. Um, so I, I've moved, you know, like if you look at my website, for example, you can see all the different, you know, phases that I've gone through, yeah. and different bodies of work that I've made, um, all dealing with fairly similar concerns, mm-hmm. obviously, but. Um, um, I want the work to sort of surprise me, yeah. you know, so um, so that's essentially I'm, I'm at a point where I'm involved in an, a new body of work um, that I think is um, somewhat different from what I was doing before. Yeah, um, I mean, it sounds like a pretty good place to be. I think so. and. Um, Also, I have a tendency to um, be very, you know, sort of um, uh, be clean and and <laughs> uh, I, I have a tendency to sort of like get into details and so on. Mm-hmm. And my my one body of work was so time consuming to make and. Um, it was almost insane, yeah. you know, that I, I, I can't believe that I made <laughs> these huge paintings using, you know, this triple zero oh, brush. <laughs> Makes me tired thinking about yeah. it. And uh, I thought, what? I don't know how I got myself into that, but I wanted to make them, so yeah. I made them, and now, and now I made them, and I don't want to make them again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got that out of your system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're probably... Um, I'm more conscious about making something that is a little looser, not so um, detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I should show you something. They look good, though. <laughs> well, I see, uh, you know, I saw the work on this wall. Oh, yeah, here. right. These are studies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... And that scale... Is that smaller scale something that you're working more on? Because generally, 
the one hanging on the wall over there? Oh, yeah, that's just a study, too. Okay. Yeah. It's like an 18 by 20 or something? Right. Or even smaller, like 12 by 16 or mm -hmm. 20, 15 by 20 or something like that. It's a nice the, size, The though. scale that I like is the 50, 64 by 54. It's a great scale. Yeah. It's like, it's big, but it's not cumbersome. Right. I can hold hold it by myself. It's like you sized. Yes. <laughs> it's completely my size. My, my you know, so... Uh, I'm very comfortable with that size, um, but even that's becoming too big at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know, you know, it's, small paintings are difficult to make, I think. They are. It's hard yeah. to make a good small painting. Yeah, it's very it's hard. easier to make them physically, right. but harder to make them good. Exactly. But if you, that's why when I see people who work small and they have knockout paintings, I'm always like, wow, that's, that's impressive. Like Tom Noskowski. Yeah. 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 I know. It's not fair. <laughs> I mean, Alex Katz, I love Alex Katz. Those scale, you know, you don't have to do much. I'm not saying his work isn't amazing. I'm a huge fan. But mm -hmm. at that scale, it's going to be impressive. Right. You know, you could put a leaf on there and you're like, wow, that's, yeah. that's a big stretcher. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but if you do that same painting tiny, does it have the same, you know, impact? Impact. Yeah. Exactly. It's one of those amazing, odd idiosyncrasies of mm -hmm. making paintings, mm -hmm. the scale shifts and what that does to the work. Um, I mean, I, I, I think scale is definitely important and I, I like large paintings, but I, I also feel that it's not necessary, certainly. You know, I think it was like the New York school was so into large-scale heroic size and all of that yeah. and um, I don't I certainly don't think that that's necessary anymore on the other hand there are certain I think there's certain experiences that can only come from a large-scale painting um, and it's satisfying yeah, both as a maker and as a viewer to to you know be be um, um, involved in it. But that said, um, <laughs> I, I do have some bigger paintings that are stretched mm -hmm. and I am planning to, you know, to make bigger paintings. But um, the other thing I'm, I'm doing more now is not finishing a painting, you know, within a prescribed time. Okay. Yeah. So I get to a certain yeah, yeah to a point, and I just let it sit mm -hmm. for a while. Um, That's harder to do when you are super busy because you feel yes, disconnected. But exactly. if you can have that time with it, and you're not running around in circles, that's right. It's almost like you can give it that time yeah. it needs and come back to yeah. it. Um, I think that you know most artists, uh, at least, um, long time ago they weren't making such huge paintings that they were able to have a lot of paintings just hang around in the yeah. studio all the time and just sort of let it rest and then go back to it after six months or whatever and, you know, pick up on, on it. Um, Must be nice. Who does that? Um, there's an artist that does that. Well, didn't Tom used to put them in his trunk and carry them around right, for a long right, time right. and work on them? Yeah. Work and work. Um, oh, I'm forgetting his name now. Anyway. So it's that's it's what I'm doable. Doing. Yeah, I feel like I have the luxury to do that now. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm 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 doing that. Um, so yeah, 
Well, you were mentioning that, so do you keep your website updated pretty regularly? Is uh, it the as best? As much as I try to, yeah, as I, I try to, but um, I haven't had any of the new work uh, photographed, mm -hmm. you know, so I have to do that and then upload them. Okay. Yeah. But that will be a good place for people to see the new work. Yeah. And to keep yeah. up to date with right. what you're doing. Yes, exactly. Well, I think you're great. I, I'm a big fan. I've been for a long time, so it's been really Thank you. nice to come over and, and chat. Thank and, you. Um, and your website is just your name. Yeah. So people can go check out yes. your work there. Yeah. If they're not familiar, haven't seen it, that's the way to get out. Well, yeah. thanks for letting me come over. Oh, no, thank you. Talking. It's very enjoyable and fun talking yeah. to you. Likewise. Thanks a lot. Sound and Vision was conceived, produced, recorded, edited, mastered, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images that I take from the podcast sessions by going to the images page on the website soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find even more images on the podcast Instagram feed at Sound and Vision Podcast. If you love hearing these artists speak about their life and work, please support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Google Play. You can even donate to help support the podcast by clicking the donate button on the webpage. The introduction and accompanying music was generously provided by Michael Lovett. Michael records as Nazca Lines and also Moonlights in the band Metronomy. The bio and outro music were provided by Sean Seymour. Sean and his wife Yoshimi are a band called Lullatone based in Nagoya, Japan. Thanks to them and also Jacob Tutu and Logan Takahashi who have also lent music to the podcast. Thanks to all the listeners who share and support the podcast. All this is done by myself without funding and ads, and it really is you all who help spread the word, and you spread it well. Many thanks to all of you and all the artists for sharing their stories and time with me.